Well, please do be seated. And um, let me add my greetings to those of James. And uh, if you'd like to follow along, for this Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to be in the letter uh, to the Colossians, but just the opening prayer. And if you have a church Bible and would like to read along with me, that is found on page 983, Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 8 this morning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, all of God's people, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray together, please. Our loving Father, grant, please, that I might speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth for the honor of our Savior and for the edification, assurance, encouragement, and comfort of us all. Amen. Well, most of you know, uh, and if you're visiting, you probably have already heard about it, but most of you will know that we are in a very, in a very important season here at Edinburgh North Church. Um, the, the fancy word sometimes that's used is that we are in an interregnum. Our former minister, Rupert, uh, has left, and at some point in the future, I'm not exactly sure when, there'll be the process to search for a new minister. And that's why it's sometimes called an interregnum, although the idea of having two kings is not really very the best, the best idea. It's a season for any church that has some particular challenges, quite frankly, but it does have some wonderful opportunities associated with it. And so we want to be uh, very much in prayer, very much in prayer, asking the Lord not only to guide the search process, but also to protect and defend us along the way, because there can be some bumps along the road as a church searches for a new minister. And along the way, I, I think it's eminently reasonable that the, the question that will probably be foremost in most of our minds and in our prayers will be, how can I phrase it? Something like this. Under the Lord's leading, what kind of minister do we want for the next chapter in the life of Edinburgh North Church? It is the right question. It's a good question. The thing is, however as we will discover, it's not as easy to answer that question as we might initially think. But there's another question. There's another question, too. And maybe I could 
phrase it like this. Under Christ, what kind of church do we want to be? Under Christ, under his leadership, not only what kind of minister do we want, but actually what kind of church do we want to be? Now, many churches try to answer that question by drawing up a church profile, which I guess we will do at some point. Some write a church vision or purpose statement, and fair enough as far as those steps go. But I think sometimes in my experience, I've, I've noticed that a church can easily use, how can I put it, incomplete metrics when they, when they kind of try to answer the question, what do we want to be like? What's missing is asking the question, well, not just what kind of church do we want to be like, but actually, what kind of church is pleasing to Christ? What kind of church does he want us to be like? As the New Testament stresses, Jesus is Lord and head of the church throughout history, throughout time, and in every local church gathering. If that's so, then what he wants, what he desires, what, what pleases him for a local church, that ought to be the chief concern for any church. But where do we find out what Christ wants for his church? Well, that's why both this Sunday and next Sunday, I want to look at the letter to the Colossians. And let me publicly acknowledge, for many of you who have been to Keswick, particularly last week, you're coming to Colossians, and you could easily be forgiven for thinking that you're, you're sort of in that film Groundhog Day. Yeah, yet again, we're in Colossians. But I, I, I think it has something to say about these two questions. The question I want to ask this morning is, what kind of church do we want to be? And secondly, next week, I want to ask the question, well, if that's the kind of church we want to be, how can we possibly be that kind of church? Now, as you will know, and particularly those of you who are at Keswick will know, these Christians in Colossae were living in an ancient part of the ancient Roman Empire in what is now part of modern Turkey. And particularly, I want to let us hear how the Apostle Paul prays for these Christians. I want to hear how Paul prays for a church whom he didn't know personally, but about whom he's heard wonderful things. Now, right at the start, one could say, but I thought you wanted to know what pleases Christ. Why? Why should we listen to Paul pray to find out what Christ wants for his church? Well, again, in verse 1, remember who Paul is. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And therefore, if what Paul prays as an apostle, if it, what he prays is in line with the Lord's pleasure and intention, then what he asks the Lord for is probably that which pleases Christ for his church. And this morning, I want to hold up to you, just in the first eight verses, four characteristics of a church that pleases Christ, and then try to bring it home to us. So here's the, the first characteristic of a church, I think, which would be pleasing to Christ. First, a people marked out by faith in Christ. A people marked out by faith in Christ. Now, Paul is writing to this uh, now in prison. We read about that in chapter 4. 
verse 18. Most likely, uh, he's imprisoned in Rome, and he's heard good reports about these people in Colossae, and he now prays for them. Or, actually, he's been praying constantly, but in this letter to them, he shares with them the content of his prayer to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ on their behalf. And he begins by being very specific about the God whom he thanks. He's thankful to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3. As you know, he, he doesn't know these people personally, but he's heard reports about them, and he is deeply, deeply, and joyfully thankful to this specific God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's thankful because he has heard reports about what God has done in their life through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that tells us something very, very important about this church or group of churches, possibly. What makes them different, what marks them out, really has nothing so much to do with themselves as it does with Christ. These are, therefore, because of who Christ is, these aren't ordinary people living ordinary lives. Now, the rest of the people in Colossae could look at these Christians and say, they're very ordinary. Weird, but they're very ordinary. But not in Paul's eyes. Whatever other things could be said about these people, what distinguishes them for which he gives thanks is their faith in Christ. In other words, Paul knows that these are women and men marked out by the goodness of God himself in his Son. And here's what Paul means, verse 4. We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. Uh, that word means God's people. Whatever other features these Colossians may possess, what matters most to Paul is their faith in Christ. And that is crucial. And this letter is all about that. It isn't that they have, how can I put it? It isn't that they simply have faith. It isn't that they're spiritual. It isn't that they're religious. What matters is they have come to place their faith in Christ. As you will see in this letter, you probably already know it, what makes their faith in Christ so praiseworthy is Christ's praiseworthiness. So that's the first characteristic in this Thanksgiving prayer, a people marked out by faith in Christ. But secondly, will you notice, one of the, the pleasing features of this church as Paul prays for them is that they are a people with a love for one another. A love for one another. Again, it's there in verse 4. It's not just that they have faith in Christ Jesus, but they have a love for one another. In other words, it's not a private or personal faith they have in Christ. In other words, they're, they're, they're not consumers who on their own and privately have decided, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of interested in Christ. They actively love and actively care for one another. This is, as Paul expresses it a little bit later in verse 8, their love for one another is actually a love in the Spirit. In other words, it's the, the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. He has done this extraordinary work in their lives, not just bringing them to faith in Christ, but a love for one another. They, want, they love one another because of Christ's love for them. 
This is so important to, 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 to grasp hold of because historians tell us that ancient Roman societies, like some of the social influences in this uh, Roman uh, city, in those societies, they gave very, very little attention and credit to this idea of love. You may have heard me reference Tom Holland in his, uh, I think, magisterial book, Dominion. He describes Roman cultures, which would have been evident in Colossae, as being far more impressed with power and control. And even in, in households, even in families, scant attention was given to this ethics of, of love. It just wasn't, it wasn't on their radar as being a cultural uh, value. So if this is true, if, if other historians and Tom Holland are right, then for these Christians to be distinguished in their own society as people not only having a faith in the crucified Son of God, but having this love for one another as well as a love for outsiders, then this is worth sitting up and taking notice of. That's the second characteristic. The third characteristic of a church that pleases Christ or what Christ wants His church to be and therefore for which Paul is praying is this. They are a people with hope. Hope through the gospel. First, they were marked out by faith in Christ. Secondly, they have a love for one another. But thirdly, and influentially, they are people through hope, through the gospel. See, what's, what's happened? Verse 5. What's happened is these women and men heard and received news about hope. Verse 5. Specifically, it is uh, the hope laid up for you in heaven. I wish we could have lots of time to to just focus on this one expression because it's so easily misunderstood. The hope about which Paul is speaking is not, I think, hope for a home in the sky after you die. I don't think that's what he's talking about. That's relevant, but that's not really what he's driving at in this letter, which I hope to show you. The hope isn't some kind of, oh, I'm hopeful now that I'm a Christian, I have life after death. That's true, but I, again, I don't think that's what Paul is trying to, to hold out for these people. It's, well, it's later. Uh, where does it come? It comes in, in verse 23, if you look down with me. It is, assures Paul, the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I have become a minister. Or again, as he expresses it in verse 27, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's that little word glory to which Paul is, is, is pointing. The hope of glory is that you right now, Paul is thanking God for them, you right now, in the gospel that you heard, which is about Christ's death and resurrection, you are set free from despair, from brokenness, from alienation, from fear and death. And the hope of glory is that you have it in part now, but at the return of Christ, when all creation is restored, and made even better than it was at first, you too will share in that majesty, that glory 
And you have that hope which is motivating you, encouraging you, strengthening you. You see what's happened, again, verse 5, they heard the gospel. And that's an important word in this letter. And as, as you know, the word gospel means good news. And I wonder if we've forgotten that. This is wonderful news that has been proclaimed. They heard and understood it as, verse 5, the word of truth. They heard and understood the gospel or good news in verse 6 is about, a, about the grace of God in truth. Truth, hope, grace. And as you know, grace is a word that expresses God's kindness, God's mercy to people. It's not because they deserve or earned or were religious enough or morally upright. No, grace has nothing to do with that. It's, it's actually, and this is, this is mind-blowing and also deeply heart-encouraging, God actually, the one true God, who could rightly judge and will judge us all, delights to forgive. It brings Him pleasure. He is pleased to rescue people. And so their hope is in a life which they are now set free from hopelessness. If you have hope, that's the opposite of hopelessness. And they're free from guilt, free from shame, free from despair. All because Christ Jesus gives life meaning, purpose, and reconciliation. You see, as you know in this letter, Paul will always say Christ is fullness. He's doing a riff off a word that would have been very popular in that, that society. Christ is fullness, and all fullness is in Him. And if you are in Christ, and that comes through hearing and receiving and trusting the gospel, which is all about Christ, then you have fullness and you have the promise of glory. And that's not merely wishful thinking. How do they know that? It's because the gospel is all about Christ Jesus. Uh, we, we, we need to tell each other that over and over again. The gospel has implications in a woman or a man or a child's life, yes. But the implications or the fruit of the gospel is not the same as the gospel. The gospel is Christ Jesus, who he is, what he did, and how that's applied. It's because the gospel is about Jesus. And he is the reason, in verse 6, he's the reason why this gospel is spreading throughout the whole world and bearing, do you notice, bearing fruit and increasing. Because uh, later on in chapter 1, verse 15, Christ is the head of all creation, the whole cosmos, then when news about him spreads throughout the whole world, of course it bears fruit. How could it not? And how wonderfully reassuring. That's, that's telling the Colossians, get this, if the gospel is about Christ, then because it's about Christ, then the gospel is not limited. Do you notice this in verse 6? It's not limited to one particular culture. In other words, if it's spreading throughout the whole world, then the whole world and the gospel have an interface. In other words, the gospel, the good news about Christ as he's Lord over all creation, holds all things into its being, then no one culture or society or race or gender 
is somehow or other excluded from the gospel. And equally, the power of the gospel, according to Paul, is not determined by whether or not a powerful speaker comes to you with dynamism and, and, and eloquence. Even someone as unknown to the rest of us, but known to the Colossians, as Epaphras, when he explains and teaches the gospel. And what distinguishes him? Well, it's there in verse 8. Uh, sorry, verse 7. He's a faithful minister of Christ. And fourthly, finally for this morning, if you'd ask, what pleases Christ in a church? What does he want for his church? Fourthly, a people encouraged by the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. A people encouraged by the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. I worked very hard at simplifying that phrase, and I failed. I just can't find a better way of saying it. See, in one sense, I suppose, and this is where it'll feel like Groundhog Day to a number of you, I think the whole letter to the Colossians, in other words, where does the nut crack or... If you were to put a strap line on this letter, what's it all about? I think, if you look ahead in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, I think, here's the, here's the letter. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, says Paul. And for those at Laodicea, that's another area close to Colossae. And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance an understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Here's the point. Paul is thanking God for them. And as we'll see next week, he's praying specifically for them. He wants them to remain in the gospel. For in the gospel, they are united to Christ. He is their hope. He is their salvation. He is their sufficiency. He is their everything. And for this, this is the kind of church pleasing to the Lord, the kind of church for whom the Lord's apostle prays in verses 6 to 7. As you've received Christ Jesus as Lord in the gospel that came to you and Epaphras taught to you, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. That's the kind of church that pleases the Lord Jesus. And so if we're hearing Paul in his thanksgiving right now, then we hear why it is important, if I can bring it home to you and to me, why this is so vital for us at ENC right now as well as into the future. Why? I acknowledge that some of you will immediately have an answer for that. You'll say, well, we want to be this kind of church because this is what the Bible tells us to be. And you're absolutely right. You would say, well, we want to be this kind of church because we want to be a gospel church. And you, you know what? You're absolutely right. But can I show you in this letter how beautifully, wonderfully, encouragingly being like this church for which Paul prays is so, so important for us. And if we ask, therefore, well, why is Paul writing what he's writing to the Colossians? That's where the dots start to connect because we, 
urgently need to be this kind of church. I'm not saying we aren't already, but we need to be even more so. Because in so many ways, speaking personally, but in so many ways, we are, we're prone to the same confusion and misplaced values the Colossians were tempted to, to accept. We too face the same day-to-day need that the Colossians faced. Let me explain. Chapter 2, verse 4. Like them, a slightly different cultural understanding of it, of course, but like them, we too face the potential to be deluded, verse 4 of chapter 2, with plausible arguments. Plausible arguments are those which seem to have a ring of truth to them that were circulating in Colossae and, and are circulating today. They are arguments about life and, and what makes for a flourishing human life. Again, we don't use the same words, but we're being offered the same kind of things. They're arguments that say, look, here's how to have a real life. Here's how to be an authentic woman or an authentic man. Here's how to have the right kind of values that can make your life rich for however long your life may be. And in chapter 2, verse 8, they may well have their foundations in what Paul calls philosophy and human tradition. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that, like the Colossians, you and I are being offered that. We're being offered that through the media and through entertainment. And I suspect most of us don't appreciate how weighty even the most lightweight film or box set might be. It's a huge weight upon our, our thinking. As well as, you know, university seminars, we tend to blame them for everything, probably fairly. But equally, when you and I watch TED Talks on YouTube, I mean, these are plausible arguments. Here's the thing, plausible arguments don't initially sound bad. I mean. Most of us know if we see something that says poison, I'm I'm not going there. What makes it plausible is that there's just enough insight, just enough attraction, just enough, yeah, that kind of makes sense. But you see, what is being offered to us is is actually kind of connecting with our deepest desires and our longings. But what Paul is saying in light of the gospel is that if we, anything other than in Christ will be, what's the phrase he uses in chapter 2, verse 8, will actually only lead to captivity because it's based on empty deceit rather than in Christ. See, the Colossians faced a problem that we face. They were offered ways to navigate through life. We don't have the time. You'll be be thankful to know. Um, But chapter 2, verses 16 to 23 uh, again, if you were at Keswick, I'm, I'm sure Jonathan may have drilled down quite deeply into that. Essentially, what they were being offered, whether it was be philosophy or rigorous self-discipline or spiritual ideas or just a way of, of a lifestyle, they were being offered a way, look, here's how you deal with the catalog that life brings to us. Shame, failure, disappointment, disillusionment. The tragedy is that all these Navigational aids were only leading to shipwreck because they were counterfeit. And they arouse human desire, of course, but they end up, do you notice in chapter 2, verse 16, don't let anybody judge you. 
See, all that's being offered apart from what is in Christ ends up just judging you. You're a failure. You're inadequate. And if you do succeed, then it flips around and says, well, now you're being arrogant. But the gospel doesn't offer you that. It offers you freedom and life. So we pray that following Paul's prayer for the Colossians, we want to apply the gospel. Not just teach the gospel. Not just proclaim the gospel, all of which are important. But, but guys, we, what we need to be is a church that applies the gospel over and over and over again. What our children are encouraged to value today, you mustn't think that it's something that you aren't prone to value as well. What our young people are told about concerning matters of racial and sexual justice is just as relevant for me as it is for them. And all of us will increasingly, to some degree or another, feel in our society here in Edinburgh a kind of bewilderment. I mean, how do we navigate through life when everything around us is just telling us all sorts of different things? This is where not just teaching the gospel, I think to teach the gospel, hopefully you're applying the gospel. We need to be a church that is constantly applying the gospel into everyday situations because Christ is Lord over everything in existence. Chapter 1, verse 15. He is the answer. Get this. He is the answer and He is the resolution to all our crises. He's the gracious and relieving answer to our guilt and shame. Chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. So what kind of church do we want to be? What kind of church do you want to be a part of? How you and I answer that is more revealing than perhaps we might at first imagine. But if by asking this question we end up sensing what we really desire to be is to be the kind of church like Paul is praying the Colossians to be. In other words, we, say to another, we, we may well say to one another, well, we have no idea what the future will hold in terms of ministries or opportunities or activities or projects. And we're probably not going to get things right. But what we want to be is a church rooted and established in Christ just as we were taught and abounding with thanksgiving. If anything else is sort of icing on the, or cherry on the cake, we want to be this kind of church. But as, I, as I've been way too long, but I want to acknowledge, and this is why I think next week is equally important, being this kind of church is not without its difficulties and challenges. And you'll see, however, that however difficult it is to be this kind of church, in verses 9 to 14, Christ is more committed to our being this kind of church than we can ask or imagine. And that is wonderfully encouraging. Amen.